From the Garden State, it's the Sopranos Podcast. Today, episode 12, The Midas Touch. You know, when I was depressed, I said I didn't want to live. Well, I'll tell you something. I didn't want to die. Every fucking particle of my being was fighting to live. That's a quote by Tony Soprano in a scene with Dr. Melfi in the episode Isabella from season one of The Sopranos, written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, and directed by Alan Coulter. Guys, I'm going to come out right out of the gate with this statement. This is possibly my favorite episode in season one, and it might be an all-time Sopranos episode for me. Isabella. Let's go around here. Tony is uh, fantasizing about a loving, caring woman slash mother figure, and Junior is taking out a hit on his nephew. Let's go around here. First thoughts on Isabella. This is a great one. It's it's a stupendous episode. I'm almost tired of saying it, but they keep <laughs> fucking doing it. <laughs> so I have to come back and... It, it's it. My wife says that to me all the time because we'll sit down to watch a sh- The Sopranos and I'll be like, oh, which one are we on? Oh, this one. This one's so good. And it's like literally every time. The other joy for <laughs> me is part of the joy of doing this podcast with you guys is that talking to you about it and hearing your insights is, I think, closest to the joy that you can't duplicate of watching it again for the first time mm. because we're seeing it through each other's eyes. And throughout this season, you both have shared fascinating insights into what Tony is looking for, the mother figure imagery, a caring, loving woman, a woman who is going to make his pain go away in some sense. We've also talked about Tony just being just around the corner from happiness in a way. And what happens in this episode when he's in a deeply depressed state is he just glimpses it. He Mm. just can almost touch it and then it's gone. That said, this episode is also structured in many ways around kind of an unreality and reality coexisting, the episode also upends the reality of the show. Yeah. Tony starts off in this depressed state, kind of living death. Junior wants to do the murder in order to actualize himself and make him to solidify his position as boss. It has the ironic effect of revitalizing Tony and condemning Junior, I think, to his fate. So there's so much plot, but also so much great imagery as we're digging deeper into Tony's even unconscious desires. And it did add up to a tremendous one hour. Um, And I want to get into also why this isn't the last episode of the season. I think it's because Tony isn't ready to see the real villain yet. Mm. It's an impeccably written episode. I think this script is outrageously good. And this is on a show where most of the scripts are already outrageously good, so it raises the bar even higher. So... It's a remarkable episode just from a writing perspective, but this episode is my favorite James Gandolfini performance of the season. Um, It is so raw and sad and very emotional. And for me, this episode, just jumping off of what Paul said so eloquently, it's both the farthest that Tony has ever been from his happiness and his hope, and it's also the closest he's ever been to it at the same time. And the script manages to balance both those two things and put them in perspective. It's an unbelievable piece of writing. To your point, Jordan, and to expand upon it, what I messaged you guys after I watched it yesterday, and um, I was in tears. Not just for the emotional resonance of the episode, which is profound and, and sad and amazing, but just as an artist, as somebody who has dedicated my life to, 
you know, acting and film and the craft of storytelling. This is every element of this was impeccably created. Everything, the 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 writing and the acting, as you so perfectly pointed out, Jordan. But the production, the the camera work. That uh, I mean, I remembered from the first time I watched it. I think one of the images burned into my head was Tony stepping into the shower and then the camera just doing that slow lilt over to the left as we zoom in on him mm. and just the shots of the trees and the wind. Let's put a pin on that for much later. But um, <laughs> God, it's just it's so so good this was this is the peak of the craft of filmmaking and storytelling to me it's just, this is as good as it gets there are scenes that are real they happen and they're shot less realistically than shit that is a straight up hallucination there's <laughs> se- there's scenes with there's a scene with carmela near the end that is shot unlike anything i've ever seen on the sopranos through this doorway that's sort of ajar but that's the real scene. I actually think both scenes with Carmela earlier in the episode are hallucinations. So that's the kind of unreality that is happening throughout this episode. And it's disorienting, it's compelling, it's fun. And it brings us to that point at the end where Tony is almost there, but he's not ready. Don't even go there with the old lady. He's not ready to see what his mother is yet. Sure. This episode also reminds me of almost like a Charles Dickens-esque tale where the specter of the thing that you need to see is lurking and, and coming after you. But in this case, it's a beautiful woman. We opened this season with him standing before the statue of the goddess, something that's been talked a lot about, something that we reference a lot of the show. And for me, the woman Isabella is that statue has finally come to life. And because Tony has not figured out what that is, who she is, what her significance is as of yet... It literally comes to haunt him uh, until he can figure it out. Both in this episode and in our our next episode, um, I Dream of of Jeannie Cusimano, we will talk about Tony finally being able to see the thing that's been in front of him for so long. But first he gets this sort of spectral visitor that he sort of hallucinates. You know, the the medium that we're using for this is that it's, it's a hallucinatory side effect of the drugs. Uh, is this woman he's seeing. But it, it might as well have just been a ghost that was sent to give him this revelation. And, and I think is, it's supposed to feel ghostly. Yeah, She's yeah. dressed in She's white. She's dressed in white. That restaurant they go to has just these billowing white like, sheets hanging yeah. up. It's so ethereal. If I, I remember watching this the first time. I bought it. I, I didn't know. I didn't necessarily know. There are lots of clues, obviously. But I didn't know that ne- this was necessarily a hallucination until it was revealed. Right. Um, but there are, you know, it's made to look that way and it feels very ghostly and no accident. We start the episode on a corpse. I think it's, it's deliberately evocative of death and ghosts and Mm -hmm. spirits. We also, if I could come to a structural point, the last episode, nobody knows anything, ratcheted up the tension in its last act. Big Pussy disappears. Did Polly jump the gun? Did Pussy lamb it? Tony is troubled by it. We know that Tony doesn't know that a hit has been ordered on him. But this episode, for example, doesn't start with Tony driving up to the newsstand and the two hitmen saying, I don't know, Mikey Palmisi said not in the face or something. It starts with Junior at this wake for a woman we don't know or give a Mm. shit about. Then Silvio is waxing historical about how Napoleon was a moody fuck. And Tony can't even (laughs) get out of bed. This is, it's not that the Sopranos builds tension. It's how they build tension. Yeah. And what's building the tension here is that nothing is fucking happening. B, A. B, our hero 
doesn't have enough pep to get out of bed and go piss. Mm. How's he going to fight these guys off? This is building the tension right from the beginning. And what will end up happening is instead the turning gyre of the episode is the second attempt at the murder, which has the opposite effect. It upends the reality again. Tony is revitalized, Junior is diminished, and the whole world changes leading into the final episode. Hmm. I would love to have a conversation with Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess. Throughout this season, the way they write family dialogue is just... its They nail it. They, they, most of the great like dinner scenes that occur in season one, the family dinner scenes, are Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess episodes. And... Um, what a great episode for them to have. I mean, I, I, I don't know how the process in the writer's room necessarily worked, but I, I, I mean, I imagine David Chase, the creator, sort of, and they all kind of get together and delegate who's going to write certain points and who's going to write certain episodes. And then David Chase kind of looks over all the scripts in the end as the creator and puts the final touches on them. But even just off the bat, what The Sopranos does best with the humor and the drama, I mean, some of this, this shit in the, even just the first, funeral scene is so funny uh and junior's um i, I found junior's uh, prayer card story funny and poignant I, I i thought that was a sweet moment there thousands of dollars for honus wagner and jack shirt for jesus <laughs> man junior is old yeah. honus wagner is a first year 1936 baseball hall of fame inductee mm. uh, and it brings up the nostalgia of course for play and catch with tony something that's striking to me is that junior is also depressed in this episode oh yeah in the first portion, because I think some of the reality of what he's doing is hitting home. I Both think our hero and our villain can't face the reality of what's in front of them. Um, Junior is just dis- displaying different symptoms. Mm. He's uh, emotionally a little bit uh, labile. He can't keep food down, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a poverty in language, in our language of how we describe mental illness. Things get oversimplified. Everybody in this episode is saying that Tony is depressed, which he is, but he's been dealing with the dynamics, and the stages of depression throughout the season. Where Tony is at this point is a what medical professionals call anhedonia, meaning there's no joy, there's no capacity for pleasure in life. The result is no pep. Mm. Can't get out of bed. So it's important to lay that out, I think, because all we see getting any kind of traction from Tony is Isabella. But importantly, the other thing, when I first watched this episode, no idea. I totally thought she was real. Uh Um, It was a shock to me when the the revelation came. But one of the good clues, I think, that this is something that Tony has made is how Tony acts with her. He is very intrigued by her. He is not coming on sexually. He is not aggressive in any way. I wrote that there's an innocence to him in the way he's talking to her. Again, he sees himself later in the episode as a baby in her arms. But there's a childlike quality. It's almost like a kid would talk to his mother or a child would talk to a, a teacher that they admire or have a crush on. It's like there's a very sweet innocence there to him. Yes, he's even, uh, yeah, I would describe him as childlike, demure mm. in some way. And structurally, this is important. This episode is about 48 minutes long. It's mm-hmm. not an especially long one. Livia does not appear in the first half mm. at all. And she's not mentioned, I don't think. Um, she doesn't need to be. She casts a shadow. After Livia does appear at that dinner where Tony comes down in his bathrobe, once Livia has actualized, has materialized, Tony never talks to Isabella again. He sees her out the window in that other hallucinatory moment with Carmela, Mm. and then the next morning, she's not there. He looks for her. She's not there. And that's when the hit happens. The mother figure 
isn't protecting him anymore. Mm. So structurally, I think that's how Isabella plays in this episode. Isabella also represents something else, too. Uh, of course, yes, uh, her being a mother figure for Tony is, is absolutely at the forefront, but also she represents sort of this authenticity of being Italian. Yes. Uh, something that Tony is always after. He's always trying to reconnect with Italy in a way, but it's in this episode that's revealed that Tony has never actually been to Italy, which is something that I was actually blown away by. Mm. I had sort of assumed that he must have taken Carmela there at least once. Maybe you do Rome, you do the big tourist cities, Venice, Naples, something. Yeah. He's never been there. He knows where his people are from, Avellino, and he kind of in his fantasy imagines that this woman knows exactly where he's from, that she's even seen someone that uh, looks, like you know, looks like him, who yeah. has worked there, a man who works with his hands, the fantasy of the day laborer, right? Mm. Or, the, or the craftsman, the mason, someone who really builds something, not someone who's just a parasite, a taker, someone who just like take things away from the society in the way that Tony does as a, as a thief. So there is this fantasy not only of having a loving mother, mother but of being authentically Italian. Look at the fucking locales uh, that, and, and the scenery around where those two interact. First scene, she's staying at the Cusamanos. What, they don't have a washer-dryer? She's hanging up clothes like the, oh, in yeah. the old country. Look at the fucking outside of that pharmacy. That pharmacy was not Look, a CVS or a Walgreens. It's labeled chemist. Established 1907. It's got all these fucking alchemy bottles in the window. Are you kidding me? And, of course, then the place they're having lunch, which might as well be Caesar's Palace. And I mean yeah. his actual palace, not the casino. It's unbelievable. Right. It's this, it's this pastoral vision of early 20th century Italy, which, which of course, in Tony's mind is like the, the era he most likely wanted to, wants to exist in in some way. You know? I wrote down a similar note about a lot of the characters looking for something authentic and how difficult it is, not only because of the revelation that he hadn't been to Italy, but because of how authenticity and inauthenticity are colliding and there's so much corruption and lying and it felt as almost as though that is how tony's anxieties built this woman his subconscious made this figure that is calling out to him mm. so it's interesting to note that about the character searching for that authenticity let's talk about this for a second while we're on this subject then isabelle is a hallucination we know at the end that he hallucinated at least one of these interactions with carmella Possibly several, as you hinted, Paul. They don't really confirm how many in the episode, but it's possible that every scene with Carmela in the bedroom could have been hallucinated, given what we know about the episode. So what does it say about their marriage and about Tony's, what he's going through right now, his projection of Carmela in this fantasy? What do we make of that? The things she says to him, the way she treats him and prods him and appears generally unsympathetic to his plight. Well, remember, one of Tony's greatest subconscious fears is castration, mm. right? The powerlessness that goes along with that, the uh, feeling of impotence, of basically losing your manhood. Carmela says in one of the hallucination scenes, or really the predominant hallucination scene, I, I ought to, you know, cut your dick off is what, <laughs> I, is what I should do when he finds out that she's taken, he's taken this woman to lunch. Um, I think Carmela is the, the, the threat, the looming threat of the wife figure, Right? Uh, she represents the harshness of the women in his life. Um, you know, he does not have a good relationship with Carmela in his subconscious. One of the things he explains to Melfi in the episode is, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm nothing. Uh, I'm not a father to my children. I'm not a husband to my wife. And he feels this inadequacy, or rather it's expressed in his subconscious as a kind of a castrational, a literal losing his penis. Mm. 
I felt very similar about that framework and particularly the castration line. And another aspect of what I mentioned earlier, anhedonia, is a very difficult imbalance between waking life and sleeping. When you're in that deep state of depression or anhedonia, you are always tired and you can almost never sleep mm. because of how restless you are. I think both those scenes with Carmela is Tony dozing. Mm. And like, is this happening? Is it not? Yeah. Because they're all around the bed. The second one, she is literally pushing him back to the bed with her verbal abuse. And so much of that, the castration imagery for one, and I would argue some others, this is the brilliance of the writing that Jordan mentioned earlier, it's not that these things do happen with Carmela, but that they could. I could see Carmela under the right circumstances saying, if I had an ounce of self-respect, I would cut your dick off. Right. But as Jordan pointed out, it's not Carmela's desire, it's Tony's subconscious fear, his mm. nightmare. In the earlier scene, Carmela says, does your lady therapist mm. do anything about this? Lady therapist. That's something that is on Carmela's mind, but Tony is still aware of it. She says in that earlier scene, it is not normal for a healthy adult male to take to bed like this. That would be, I think, Carmela's concern. I think it's Tony's self-talk. Yeah. I think it's like, why am I doing this? Because again, when you're in that state, you're that depressed, you know it's not normal, and you feel shitty about it. You know what happens then? You get more depressed. That's his own cycle happening, I would Yeah, argue. yeah. And, and I, I did a little uh, looking into lithium for the first time after watching this episode. I didn't know this, but lithium hallucinations are a real thing. It's a mood stabilizer, and it doesn't, obviously it doesn't, do it in all people but in prolonged uh, you know if you're taking it for a prolonged length of time and you're a certain kind of depressed personality th this is a this is a legit thing i mean he could have and the show doesn't do us the courtesy of explaining what exactly was a hallucination versus what's not which is what makes it all the more fascinating and fun let's talk a little bit about the real though i want to talk a little bit about uh, junior and Mikey and this uh, attempted hit, where Christopher is and all this. I thought Christopher's positioning in this episode is very interesting and, and his role to play in this. One of the things that caught, that, that I liked, uh, first of all, we have, and we also have this subplot of Jimmy Altieri being a, a rat and everyone's kind of on to him. Junior says, you know, Jimmy, don't worry about what I know. Um, so... Already, word is spread about this guy. That he's, the worst rat ever, by the he, way. This guy I, is so I obvious. Wrote that. Yeah. He's the he's, worst rat in the history so of the He's so obvious in the kinds of questions that he asks people. It's almost like he's telling people that hey, he's Junior, a rat. that guy you killed four months ago. Uh, how, how's that going? Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Basically, you know. Yeah. Fucking manners, as Junior says. Uh, and then they call him Pork Chop Boy, which made me laugh Very out loud. Funny. I just thought that's a great nickname for Jimmy. Um, but they hire these quote-unquote black guys, um, and it'll never lead back. This is a uh, this is a trope that is going to be visited deliberately in the show repeatedly. Uh, there's an episode in season five called "Unidentified Black Males" that specifically exploits uh, and explores the way. The mob um, kind of uses stereotypes about black men to get away with a lot of stuff. It's fascinating material. One of my favorite sequences in the episode, in an episode that is loaded with great sequences, loaded with great sequences <laughs> is the first hit, the first attempted hit yeah. on Tony is amazing. We have these black gentlemen waiting to perform the hit on Tony. Uh, we see Tony going into a donut shop, which for us as the viewer is totally natural. Yeah, Tony, big guy, likes donuts. Sure, why not? We have no reason to suspect he's doing anything other than that. Chris pulls up 
blocking these guys. There's an interaction between these guys and Chris where they pose briefly as police officers. Uh, you know, they ask him to move his car. And because and they Chris... They have no patience for that illusion at very long. No, no, no. Days. The last two seconds. <laughs> and because Chris can't ever not be the man, yeah. right? He tries to intimidate these guys back, basically tells them to go fuck themselves. Uh, and it, it's due to Chris's arrogance and, frankly, Chris's racism that this hit doesn't go any further in that moment. But in the same sequence, it's revealed that Tony is not getting donuts. He is using the the back door of the donut shop to access the medical pavilion where his therapy is located because he does not want to be seen overtly just walking into his psychiatrist's office. That one stretch of things that happen is almost like a microcosm for almost the entire show. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a really neat, really well-thought-out sequence. That's what I was thinking is that... Uh... When we discussed episode four, it was all based around these two worlds colliding. What happens if the guys find out Tony's having nightmares about it? And Tony's concern for Chris a couple of episodes ago, in an interesting Sopranos-esque way, exposed him to Chris's suspicions. And Chris getting close enough, and this added aspect of his arrogance and racism, actually ends up going from a place where he was getting a little too close to Mm. Tony and Tony's secrets about going to therapy, to actually saving Tony. Um, and that's one of the Sopranos' ironies. Um, it, f- it felt to me an aspect of the wind in the episode, just something that is blowing through and is totally out of our control. Do we want to talk about that now? Because that's a really big piece symbolically, Please. I think. Yeah. Um, so let's discuss weather in this episode. It'll come up again later uh, when we discuss the finale. But for now, weather's playing a huge part in this episode. There is this outside force that is blowing through this episode. Mm. Uh, Multiple characters are dealing with it. The dream woman is also dealing with it while she struggles to set up the tent in the Kusumano's yard. What is going on with the wind in this episode? Well, first and foremost, it's, to me, just a general sign of good writing. In theory, now, we are all writers in this room, and we know that sometimes you just don't go this deep every single time just because whatever. But... You know, when you're when you're writing a scene, you really should know what's the weather like on that day. Where are they? What's going on around them? Uh, wh- you know, what is? And then you also need to find cool ways to let what's happening around them inform the action, right? Uh, I, I think the wind. Um, it kind of makes it, generally speaking, as an aesthetic, it makes it more ethereal and dreamy. It picks up as the as the action is getting a little bit more tumultuous. Uh, the wind on the day that the actual hit attempt happens, not the first one, but the the one where, you know, Tony is kind of snapped out of it, is, is like, so bad. The wind keeps picking up. Uh, um, and um, I don't know if it's a quote-unquote quote symbol or for anything, but it provides a nice um, ethereal escalation in, in, the, in the world. I, I, yeah, I think there is a symbol here. I think it, it is Shakespearean. I think it, it takes its cues from that. You know, uh, Macbeth, The Tempest, uh, Lear, these are all plays that have uh, a lot of storms going on in yeah. them. The weather matches, the humor of the weather matches the humor of the character. You know, it seems like Tony, Tony feels like he's being sort of blown around. Uh, I think that that is maybe a literal manifestation of that, that he is caught up in a storm that is both now internal and external. I think that's part of it. It's also the winds of change. If you want to take it more literally, it could be just that, that there's something in the wind, some uh, ill portent, you know, something. There's really something there with it. Wind, it's very deliberate. Wind is life to me also. I think wind is, is kind of like the world's way of saying there's 
bigger things going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and an episode that starts with death in a funeral home, an episode that's about living death, feeling dead while you're still alive. The wind is kind of like, hey, buddy, the world's coming at you. Don't forget, you know, there are things outside of your control that are going to move. Yeah. Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I think these insights are great. And the only thing, when I thought of the wind, I hadn't made the connection to Shakespeare yet, but certainly something big is pushing us around, something like the winds of change. I think also, to me, it's always been, it's a very important detail, and again, I I would argue it's Sopranos-esque, that Tony survives the second full-on assassination attempt with a combination of skill and luck. And that's what The Sopranos is. The wind is always shifting through. No matter how good a gangster you are, you're never in complete control. Mm. And forgive me, kind of a shitty gangster like Junior really isn't in control. This episode also proved to me Junior cannot be boss under uh, any circumstances. I agree. Yeah, we, we should talk about that as well. But this is, uh, just to put a cap on the weather, this is only really the second episode where weather's been used to tell some of the story here. College mm-hmm. was the other episode where the yeah. weather really was important and it was almost like the script was saying... Hey, pay attention to this weather. What's being said here? What's going on underneath of it? Uh, I think the wind here is is all the things that we've acknowledged. I think maybe most of all, really what you said, Chris, is that, you know, it is kind of showing us this thinness between dreams and reality, almost like the wind is the rippling portal between the two. Uh, yeah. and, and we're experiencing this as the two worlds, dream and reality, converge. Yeah. Great, great discussion on that, guys. Uh, I want to move this a little bit into, we were talking about Junior being boss and being gangster. First of all, let's talk about these attempted hits just on a plot level. And I want to start with this scene after uh, talking specifically about Junior here for a moment. I want to talk about this very fun, interesting, and very telling scene where we really see Junior on full display uh, when he's throwing up after the first failed attempt. And he's in the car with Mikey and he's vomiting. And he's, he can't handle the fact that it didn't happen. He wanted it done. He didn't want it. He doesn't want to think about it anymore. First and foremost, props to Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, or if this was a David Chase being cute after they turned the script in. Somebody wrote, Junior, Mince? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking... It was, it was that's cute. That's, that's adorable. There's no way that's an accident. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, this middle, this second middleman, because Junior passes the order to Mikey and Chucky. Chucky finds this guy. This guy finds the black guys. That's how the mob boss insulates himself. Yeah, this guy sucks. What's his name? Donnie. Dante. Oh, Dante. Or Don, was it Donnie? I think it was yeah, Donnie. Donnie at one point. Yeah, I think you're right. It was Donnie. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, Donnie. And uh, yeah, he sucks. He's like some street level punk that, you know, clearly, he's probably not even Italian. He's probably just some guy that they know that hired these two black guys. And, um,. Junior has him killed just because he doesn't, you know, one offhand comment, you know, that, and, and Junior just says, I don't like it. Next, he'll be talking about me. Insecurity. That's it. He, Hesh says it in episode one. The man is driven in toto by insecurity, and it's on full display here. He just kills this guy. And it, that's not to say the hit would have gone off perfectly if he had left this guy alive. He probably would have the exact same thing would have happened. But, you know, it's just... It's very telling of Junior's style, and then just kind of the... I love that shot of the car driving by, and you just see his glasses and his hat looking out the car window as they drive past the, the it's, victim. It's pathetic. It's <laughs> strange. It is, it's a funny, weird scene. But it points to, I think, what Junior is going through in this episode, wherein it leads him to the realization that he's been duped. 
he's been used by two sopranos not for his own ends but for theirs and part of what that sequence shows that's so fascinating to me that happens throughout the episode is that 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 whole sequence i think is an example the writing is terrific about how junior believes that this murder that he doesn't want to hear anything about he wants it to happen over there through his his position is if i delegate i delegate the truth is he's troubled and he doesn't want to think about it he thinks it's going to make him whole it could actually be mistaken that nobody would rise up against him and new york would just fall in line it doesn't matter because it fails but the murder the attempted murder ends up again as i've said having absolutely the opposite effect Everything that Tony has struggled with throughout this season, all the other characters that he's had very tenuous relationships with, Carmela, the kids, Christopher, the gangsters, they all come to his side. The geriatric alliance starts to fray. Mm. Junior and Livia are not on the same page. That's all important. Structurally, that's what happens in this episode. The world gets turned upside down. (laughs) It's also occurred to me that not only has Tony and the Capos pretended or allowed junior to believe that he's the boss livia has done the same thing to him making him believe that he's the one in charge Mm -hmm. and of course he's not so i want to talk a little bit about this dinner scene we have another robin green mitchell burgess dinner scene great Uh, tony shows up in his bathrobe livia comments on his breath talks about yet again i think they've peppered these uh inferences from from livia we're past spoiler territory. There's been an attempt on. T- there's going to be an attempt on Tony's life in this episode, and um, she's talking yet again about a family that uh, you know the three children were shot and the house was set on fire. Which I mean, yes. Olivia has three children, so it, there's kind of an interesting little parallel there. Olivia um, also is a textbook. She gives the textbook not helpful answer to somebody who is depressed. Yeah. Like, literally the first entry in the book, don't say this to a depressed person. <laughs> what do you have to be depressed about? That's her response. Yeah. It's well, incredible. It's rough. And yet again, she swears that she'll never eat at the house again. And as we find out maybe 10 minutes from now, that's not the case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we go on from here. We see the scene uh, with Livia and Junior outside the movie theater. The wind again. We're you know, back to we talked at length about the wind, but the first shot we get is this hat rolling down the sidewalk, and uh, this very funny line: three dollars. That's all anyone should have to pay for a movie. Good God! In the era where ticket movie theater tickets are seventeen bucks. Yeah, I hate this scene. It's it's an amazing short scene, but I, I hate it. They're just talking so casually about killing off Tony. You know, well, is... and not only killing him, that would be callous enough, but. Livia floats the idea that he'd be better off dead. Yeah, it's like such a cold fucking scene. There, really his is. family would be better off with him dead, which, say whatever you want about Tony and his skills as a husband and a, and a father, I, I, can't, I, I can't think that's the truth. This is also one of the important scenes where the way it's shot is more dreamlike than real. Um, but it is happening. There's an unreality to it, but part of it, maybe this is to Jordan's point, it's it's real, but it's unimaginable. These people, casual, a woman casually talking to her brother-in-law about murdering his nephew, her son. Mm. Something still, even to me at this point, I was like, good God. So that's the way it felt to me and why it's maybe shot in that particular way. And such a mundane location. I mean, it's not like they're having this conversation in private, the corner of a shadowy cafe, at a restaurant, at a bar, whatever. You know, even in her uh, apartment, it's, they're in line at the movies. There are people around, and they're not, they're not discussing the weather or the film they're about to see. They're discussing potentially a hit on 
her son, Junior's nephew. That's fucked up shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, speaking of the hit, we talked a lot about the wind and the imagery and, and whatever, but let's get into this on the nitty-gritty here. I love how this scene starts. For those of you who aren't uh, Godfather fanatics enough to notice this, you have to notice the parallels. The orange is a symbol of death in the Godfather series. Michael is sucking on an orange in Godfather 2 before he plots the death of Hyman Roth and Frank Pantangeli. Um, the Don is, and most relating to this episode, the Don Corleone is buying oranges at a newsstand when Virgil Solozzo's guys come and shoot him in front of Fredo. And that's exactly what we have happening here. It's an updated version. Tony Soprano, our Don, our boss, buying orange juice at a newsstand. Because of the Godfather orange thing, there are going to be a lot of orange references within the Sopranos proper, and this is a big one. The juice just got splattered by the first shot of the bullet. I also think the orange juice bottle shattering has the ironic effect not of death, but of waking Tony up. Oh, yeah. And and that's the point where the Tiny Tears track cuts out just then when I think the next bullet hits the uh, the driver's side window, and then there's that music's out. And, and what Tony an effective... Is... I mean, that music has been weaving and haunting this entire thing you know there's this song it's not actually this long but the song feels like it's got to be like seven minutes long there's just always another verse it's melancholy the lyrics fit and it just builds to this gorgeous swell up until the bullets are shot and then that window hits and we're done we're out of dreamland yeah the other gangster film i would like to reference in addition to the godfather and the godfather 2 is another great film we were talking about the coen brothers in a previous episode this this reminded me a lot of a scene in miller's crossing Spoilers for Miller's Crossing, guys, you've had about 35 years. Um, you know, the, the hitmen come for Albert Finney's character, and he's able to turn what would be a, a hit, probably an easy hit on him. He, he's uh, initially unarmed in that scene. In fact, he's sleeping in bed. Turns it into an outrageous success in that film in which one man fends off everybody else. Similarly, in this scene, Tony turns off what should be an easy hit on his life. He's starting off armed with a bottle of orange juice, um, and he expertly takes out two assassins with handguns at close range while in the car and sort of encumbered. Um, really uh, amazing. He's starting from a flat-footed position. Yeah. He's able to get these guys in close enough where he basically traps the firearm in both cases. One man is killed by his compatriot, yeah. uh, and the other is nearly run over and then does get away. Yes, Tony gets into a car accident, but really his injuries are minor comparatively. You said earlier in the season, and I never forgot this because it's so true, that Tony is death come knocking. Yeah, he's just unstoppable at this and point. Yeah. What's, what, this hit, more, more than any other instance in the show... Because now his life is actually at threat. I mean, most of the time when he goes after somebody, he's going after somebody and there's nothing they can do about it. But he's at he's in significant peril here. But it shows his killer instinct. Because they mention later on in the scene with the Gabagool and they're all kind of convalescing back at Casa Soprano that he had a piece under the seat, right? Most guys in his position would have fumbled or reached for that gun and been blown the fuck away. The guy was right there right. with the gun. He'd have been dead if that was his tactic. But Tony knows his strength. Tony knows I can overpower this guy. Who has, who in the world, maybe one out of every 25 million people with a killer instinct would say, oh, I'm stronger than this guy. I'm just going to grab his fucking gun. He reaches over, grabs his gun and knows that he's eventually going to wrestle it away from him. Mm -hmm. That's balls. That's Tony's killer instinct. There's a reason he survives this hit attempt beyond luck. It, it's just amazing, and, and it's quite thrilling to watch. I was like, oof, you know, this will jumpstart you. 
Yeah. It I... also um, frames something important in Tony's character. Tony, in the early goings, when he's talking to Chris, says, I don't even know if Jimmy is the one who flipped anymore. I don't know nothing no more. And he describes his symptoms of anhedonia to Melfi. Nothing. Dead. So not only does he react, and the, the killer instinct kicks in and serves him well, he survives. And as Jordan said, yes, he gets into the accident, but think of the first half, I don't know nothing no more. And then think of where Tony is in that scene in the hospital afterwards. Completely centered. He's back to his old self. First, he's cantankerous, so mm-hmm. we know he's all right. He's funny. Well, yeah, his AJ. first line in that scene is that gas mileage joke. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and when Carmela, I think just making a little noise, frankly, in her Carmela way about this life, Tet says to him, I want those kids to have a father. Tony says, they got one. Me, Tony Soprano, and all that comes with it. The world has turned upside down. But this hit has, again, brought him back to life. Yeah, he said earlier, I'm not a husband, I'm not a father. Now he is the husband and the father, and he's making the decision. He's he's deci- he's taken the reins again. Right. Uh, Tony makes this allusion to the myth of, of King Midas in, in therapy. He says, I'm like King Midas in reverse. Everything I touch turns to shit. Of course, in the real myth, uh, Midas was blessed slash cursed. Everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, until he eventually rid himself of that uh, same curse. I think, or, or rather I would posit, that everything Tony touches withers and dies in some way. So it's not gold, but rather death that Tony spreads. And I think that kind of consolidates this idea of Tony as a literal personification of, of death. There's also a nice, maybe a sideways reference, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you know, the earliest story we have of Hercules or Heracles is that uh, his mother mother, quote-unquote, Hera, sends two cobras to uh, attack him in his crib, and he strangles both of them, foiling the mother's plan. Mm. Doesn't that feel like Livia to you? Are not the two black male assassins in this almost like the serpents that are sent after Hercules? Wow. Uh, the baby foiling that in his own crib? By uh, hand. Yeah, by by hand. It's, it's literally strangling these guns as if they are serpents. And I think... Um, you know, it's not the Midas touch, and that's not exactly the same myth, but there is something mythological about Tony where he has this place in his own story that is beyond normal human ability. That's going to come back again, by the way. We're going to put a pin on that for future seasons. But that, yeah, oh, so such a great point, Jordan. Let's talk for a minute about this FBI offer. Agent Harris comes in. Uh, Tony's ear has been... St- Disfigured as Livia. <laughs> Can he hear out of that ear? <laughs> Your ear, it's disfigured. First thing out of her mouth. <laughs> um, but no, Agent Harris comes to visit the hospital. Tony obviously does the gangster, the Omerta thing, the gangster thing. Nope, go away. It was a carjack and he yells at him, get the hell out of here, you're upsetting my wife. More upsetting him, it seems. But, uh, you know, Agent Harris, this is not the first time we've seen him. At this point, we, you know, we don't know. Is Tony going to face an indictment? You know, it, it, Harris is right in a way and wrong in a way. I don't think he, I think he's underestimating Tony's chances of survival on the streets. But at the same time, you know, Harris is putting on this, putting the screws here. What do we think of this FBI offer and how Tony responds to it and how Carmela responds to it? Oh, oh sorry. Go sorry. Ahead. Not much is what I think of it. <laughs> um, and it, but it's, I think it comes at this time to perhaps bring back the FBI's presence and the question of the indictments, which are referenced earlier in the episode and to give Tony a possible out, which he comes not close to taking. And when I say that Carmela is making noise, mm. this is part of Carmela's character that it's not that she, of course she cares and of course she's terrified that 
this this happened and that Tony was almost killed, but she's going to come back to center, as mm. the other characters do. They're all there with him at the house. This might be a controversial opinion, but my thinking is that if Tony decided here, yeah, you know what, Whew, I'm in big trouble. I better go into <laughs> witness protection. Um, Carmella, I, this is an interesting thing. I think Carmella would absolutely go with him. I also think she would hate that. As much as she's kind of encouraging it, I, I, I don't know. Is she maybe just testing in a way to see that he's going to fight for it? I don't... What is this here? Because I don't think Carmella would be happy in the witness protection lifestyle. No. This, these things Tony... These thing, comic, comical things Tony's talking about, like growing up in Utah, having a rattlesnake ranch, tomatoes that have no taste. These are very funny images, but I also don't think Carmella would very much like that And lifestyle. she calls him a prick, but maybe his mentioning that is part of why it peters out. She knows he's right. Right. I don't think Carmella has any intention of ever even allowing Tony to enter the witness protection program. What do you want to be, Mike Smith, living in Utah, you know, selling Indian relics by the side of the road? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she would never accept that kind of life. Does Carmella love Tony? Yes, I think, of, of course she does. But I think also, I'm going to give her more credit here, I think she loves everything that Tony is, everything about Tony, and that includes his gangsterism, and it includes the life. What do I make of the FBI's presence in this scene? I love that they're there because it gives Tony an opportunity to say fuck you to them. Yeah. This is him claiming his life back. This yeah. is a very empowering episode for Tony Soprano. We see him at his bottom and at his top. After this hit, he's got that old panache back, right? It's like he rechooses his own life. And that is the key to averting this suicidal depression that he has, is choosing his happiness and choosing his life. And saying, you know what? This is part of what I am. My kids have a father. I'm Tony Soprano. I'm a gangster. It's who I am. It's what I do. And that scene in the hospital when he's first recovering is, frankly, triumphant. And it's so ironic, too, that he's turning down the government because I think that attitude is the most American thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> the most American that Captain America ever is, literally a character <laughs> called Captain America, is when he's saying fuck you to the big federal government and those yeah. agencies <laughs> and kind of doing his own thing as a rugged individualist, right? Yeah. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to that very soon. Um, let's talk. We have this very funny scene between Junior and Livia where they're like, what the fuck do we do? This totally shit the bed oh, twice. so now. funny. This great scene. Uh, and Livia has quite a telling line here. We want to talk about Freud and, and, and subtext. My son got shot, and he got away. <laughs> you know, and then they have to go and put on a show. Uh, more uh, stories. And more. they're they're terrified. Oh, you you can feel their fear, particularly Junior. Particularly Junior. Livia's probably a little too savvy to be too well, afraid. Now she has to start plotting. How do I get out of this? Because she knows it's coming back on her. Oh, and it's immediate. She sees Meadow. I mean. Yeah. Who's that? Who are you? Who's that? Yeah. Oh, so good. And Junior's looking over like, you fuck. And then we get these great, this another great scene between Junior and Livia shortly after where Junior is like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. I, so many funny lines here. You know, knock, I could have been in the nude. Uh, <laughs> fuck your slipper. <laughs> fuck your slipper. Junior Soprano. I want a poster of Junior Soprano <laughs> with the quote, fuck your slipper. <laughs> Um, yeah. The important point there in that scene is that I think even if it's just a dawning realization, Junior realizes. And yeah, and not an accidental parallel here I'm about to point out. When Tony calls out Livia in the episode Down Neck, you know, if you had been born after those feminists, you'd have been the real gangster. Mm -hmm. She gives him the big smug, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? Same line, different delivery, but same line to Junior. Junior calls her out. 
Nice timing, right after the move on your son goes down the toilet. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, again, it's cla- it, this is oh she's yeah. this is the pattern. She's this masterful. is Livia. She is the gangster here. Yeah. So um, everyone has come to see Tony as he's convalescing at the house, and I think this is another just a great scene in which Tony is able to you know just reclaim his empire, put his family to rights. Mm-hmm. He's going to send AJ to that dance. He's going to take that future Miss New Jersey Miss New Jersey to the dance. Um, <laughs> you know he's uh, talking with his. Uh, people, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do about Junior. He's found out that he's Joe Jerkoff and not the boss. Uh, what's the next step there? Tony's coming back. He's not sleeping in bed. He's not lethargic anymore. He's physically injured, but mentally, he is he is healed. Um, and uh, additionally, uh, fucking Father Phil shows up, my least favorite character on The Sopranos. And uh, he, he's got this great <laughs> dig at him. He's like, Father, you're sleeping over, right? I just, oh cause, cause god, he's, he's so going to get everybody. He really is. He's just set up now. I'm going to fend them all off. You know? That was sure. a good payoff. Yeah. yeah, he's sharp as a whip, and that's a great line. I love how quickly Carmela jumps on that cue. Like, yep. oh, anybody yep. want, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever the hell she offers? But right, so fucking funny. Um, Gabagool over here. Great line. <laughs> can't so, can't yeah. go wrong with a line like that. In a I love show. that the girl that AJ takes to the dance is taller than him. <laughs> it's domineering this woman is a figure. little this is a funny little subplot i love livia's line earlier in the episode i say this to lily all the time my wife lily um you know if i was that young girl and you went to take me to that dance and used that kind of talk i'd smack your face that's <laughs> <laughs> such a great grandma thing to say and carmel actually agrees with her on that yes, score, thank right? you mom yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a small point, but I'd like to speak about AJ just a little bit in this yeah, episode. Yeah, please, he's so, in there. So, you know, earlier in the episode, we, we get this, you know, that he's going to go to the dance, and, and he's going to take this girl, and we're like, oh, God, what is what is this going to be like for someone like AJ? <laughs> and he seems, like, a little uncomfortable about it as well. Oh, he definitely doesn't want to go to this dance. So, oh, right, right. And Carmela kind of instructs him at the dinner table, the earlier dinner scene with uh, Livia, you know, what do you do? And he, he pulls out the chair for her, which is just awkward and overly formal. <laughs> but can we fast forward a little bit and imagine what this dance is going to be like for him? He's already known as Tony Soprano's kid, and rather than Carmela just driving him to the dance in their normal family car, he's going to arrive in a stretch limousine uh, with this, uh, you know, girl who's taller than him, accompanied by two of Tony's main men, Yeah, you know, in the, in the limousine with him. I'd also like to speak about the moment that Tony is in the hospital. Meadow and AJ are very oh, upset. Their father has been shot, and they're, they're outside, and they're, they're basically on the verge of tears. And then Silvio and Polly show up, you know, Tony's right and left hand, basically. Yeah. And they're dressed to the nines, mm-hmm. but it's morning. We know this. Tony was out getting orange juice, whatever, the paper. Uh, and AJ says, they looked weird. Yeah. I don't think it was a carjacking. You know, we're, we've now, we now know that AJ has processed that his father is some big higher up guy in the mob. He, he has had that truth revealed to him. But this is just another physical, undeniable example. Here are these guys showing up dressed to the nines to see to the boss mm. while he is recovering what are they going to do about it you know two thoughts on that one first of all if i ever get if there's ever an attempted murder on me please send paul and sill my way i that those are the two guys i'd want right at my side to protect me going forward um just sycophantic enough to kind of suck up and do what you want but dangerous enough to get to do the right you know to do the job 
Uh, and then second of all, I was very touched by that little scene. I'm glad you, you brought that yeah. up. Um, they each hug each of them. Well, that's, you know? yeah, yeah. They, they hug them and then they walk off and AJ's, again, fidgeting, picking at his, <laughs> right. picking at the tongue of his shoe. Very smart. Some director, uh, uh, Alan Coulter or whoever told AJ to do that. Very good. Keeping up with the character trait. And Meadows' response to I don't think it was a carjacking. Uh, these two spoiled kids who spend a lot of time bickering and being spoiled mob boss kids... She puts an arm around him and pulls him close. I just thought that was a very touching scene for these. Two. It was, it was nice. and it, and it's and it's solidifying their position. Yeah, they know, and they're behind Tony, and they all come together. Um, it's powerful in that regard. They have um, a father, Tony Soprano, and all that comes with it. Right. There's a funny. There is a funny bit. Again, can't be a mistake. Where the portion of the hallway in the hospital that they're sitting in, I think, has some kind of sign that. Maybe it's about hygiene or something, or about home life, and it says safe families. Everybody needs one. Ooh, just that, just very, that very good pickup thought. I mean, wow. given what this family is doing, <laughs> these characters coming apart. Yeah, let's move forward here into this very interesting scene. This is one of the most unique Tony and Melfi scenes in the entire series, if only because most of their scenes happen in. Melfi's office. <laughs> and so just even seeing them in a different locale, seeing her in sweatpants, uh, they have this, it feels like a clandestine mob meeting, but in truth, it's a doctor being a good doctor. Your, your patient was almost assassinated earlier today, so you go out to meet them. First thought on this, there's no way those are her son's cigarettes. I have validation for this uh, later on in the series. Can't talk about it yet, but... Just generally speaking, you know, Melfi's smoking, which seems like it's out of character, but there's no way those are her son's cigarettes. Also, she would never keep her son's cigarettes in her car right. in that way. She would never <laughs> condone of him smoking, frankly. Uh, no, but um, Tony smoking what could be the kid's cigarettes is um, connected for me to what this scene is, which is the only scene in the episode that actually happens where Tony has a caring, loving woman looking Looks, after him. Yeah. Um, so it's not a mistake that it's in a car. It's not a mistake that it's intimate that he reaches out and touches her face at one point, um, it, it does have this incredible intimacy. It seems almost like an affair that nobody was supposed to yeah. know about. Have you told anybody about you and me? Mm-hmm. Um, very powerful stuff. And um, it's the closest that Tony comes to. Another thing about depression and something like anhedonia, it's not sadness. That's not a specific enough concept. Get Being sad and being able to process it and say cry, that's a good sign that you're coming out of anhedonia. Tony cries. Yeah. In the scene with Mel, he 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 would not be here without Melfi, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, and she's going to be instrumental in his taking the final step. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. Just great work between these two actors. Uh, Melfi is at this point, as far as I'm concerned, I think there's evidence that she catches on to Tony's mother much earlier, but Melfi's on to Tony's mom at this point. She asks him very pointedly after Tony grills her, "Did you tell anybody about us?" She said her first question after Tony kind of lets that go is, does your mother know you're in therapy? It's She's putting it together in her head, right? And then I think the dream just solidifies it for her. So that's all very interesting. And um, one thing I also noticed about this too, and I, I found it out of place having been in various forms of therapy in my life, he ends the scene by kind of... We talked about the intimacy and how this almost feels like it's an affair. And we've skirted around the flirtatious, sexual, romantic um, undercurrent of Tony and Melfi's relationship. What's there, what isn't. He touches her face, which is a very intimate way of saying thank you, goodbye, for now. And 
she smiles. Mm-hmm. She doesn't recoil. She doesn't say, Tony, that's not appropriate. She, you know, he touches her face and she smiles. There is an intimacy here. This confirms it for me. I mean, there's a lot we can talk about there, but I just, interesting little note to end this, uh, this little meeting. There's definitely, we're, we're beyond doctor patient at this point. Oh, for sure. This episode also, for me, even though I have my issues with um, question of, say, over-prescribing meds, because of what Tony's going through, all the questions about Melfi's ethical quandaries of treating this guy, for the moment, I set aside because he's in such clear, legitimate pain. And what she's doing is helpful and useful. And then we progress into these last sequences here where Tony pieces together that he's been, uh, uh, that this has all been a fantasy. Love Carmela's reaction when Tony asks her about the cutting. Like, she's just... Uh, <laughs> she's more angry. She's yeah. angrier. Yeah. You should see her now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this last phone call between Tony and Melfi is great. Uh, discontinue the lithium. And, uh, oh, what an ominous final line. Because it's like, we've seen Tony at his best now. He's back in form. He's, he's ready to go get him. If this were any other show... We would leave this episode feeling, yeah, Tony's going to fuck him up next episode. But his last line here is, when I find out who took a shot at me, I'm going to feel even better. And he could not possibly be more incorrect about that. Hmm. What do we make of this final phone call? The great uh, music cue here, I Feel Free by Cream. Uh, It's the best music cue in the first season, I think. (sighs) And the way that it all comes together is so nice because of what you mentioned Tony believing that, again, this is perhaps going to make him whole. Uh, Melfi is way ahead of him on this. But in therapy, you're supposed to have your own breakthroughs. It's going to come together in the last episode. But he set out on this mission. There is something powerful and energizing about this ending. Certainly a forward that you want to watch the last episode. And his energy seems solid. He says, actually, I feel pretty good, as you say. But there is something ominous about that last line there's also something ominous to me i felt about how dominated he looked by the the browning trees and -hmm. everything but um it's so fascinating the way that it all comes together with the energy of that cream song tiny tears which had almost the opposite vibe it was so slow one of the lyrics in that song was tiny tears can fill up an ocean i feel free starts with this bump 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 and then it gets the the hum in um these are the first two stanzas of that song when I dance with you, we move like the sea. You, you're all I want to know. I feel free. Second verse, I can walk down the street, there's no one there. Though the pavements are one huge crowd, I can drive down the road my eyes don't see, though my mind wants to cry out loud. Thematically, that's the episode. Hmm. What he can see, what he can't see, what his subconscious is screaming at him. Hmm. And that's why there's still work to do, because we have yet to not reveal the enemy, the hero has to see it, which is how the psychiatric framework of the first season is going to stay so important in the last episode. Any final thoughts, guys, on Isabella? What a great hour. I mean, uh, you know, I've, we've this is already probably one of our longer episodes, and I'm, I feel like I could go for another at least half hour on this one. But any final thoughts on Isabella? Points we didn't get to. Questions? Um, two final thoughts from me. One is that I love the emotional arc of this episode. We've mentioned several times now that Tony starts off in a low place, maybe his lowest place, and he ends up okay. He says at the end of this episode, I feel pretty good, actually. 
that's such a simple line, but there's so much meaning in that. To really feel okay after a long period of depression, suicidal depression, is really a win. I used the word triumphant earlier. I'm going to repeat that now. Yes, Chris, I agree. The last line is ominous, especially because we, the audience, kind of knows what's coming. We, like Melfi, are a little bit ahead of Tony on this. But um, he's okay with himself. He's all right with himself. He can now deal with the world's challenges. Mm. And even though we know there's probably a lot of heartache, heartache or heartbreak in Tony's future, he can meet them evenly. There's a balance now. He's, right. he's found it. He's found some joy. He's found some happiness. He's found his sense of himself again. And I think that's really powerful. This woman, Isabella, is the other thing I would like to talk about. This woman has basically led him there. She's coaxed it out of him. But this woman represents the best parts of Carmela and the best parts of Dr. Melfi and probably some of the best parts of him within himself coming out as an entity, uh, even a, a spiritual entity. The woman, Isabella, is studying uh, uh, oral medicine. You know, she's, she's studying to become uh, a dentist or, or a dental assistant. We're not exactly sure of the nature of it, but she says one of the things that interests her uh, are gum tumors, right? Uh, or, or tumors that appear in the mouth, things like that. And I think that's a very light symbol there for this thing that is stuck in your mouth that needs to be removed, this thing that needs to be said. Uh, tumors mm. need to be cut out. Cancer needs to be removed. Things that prevent you from speaking truth uh, are important. Um, I think this is a woman who is here to deliver the truth to Tony. Uh, Paul acknowledged in therapy, you need to have your own breakthroughs. I think this woman is the representation of his breakthrough. If I could end very briefly where Jordan began with um, a shout out to Jimmy Gandolfini, yeah. who deserves a shout out for almost any moment that he's on screen, particularly because um, I will say I've been pretty close to or in the state that Tony is in early as in this episode. As have I, yeah. And you really need a first-rate actor to get it right. And he nailed it. The emotional liability of a scene where he can barely process what some what Christopher is saying, but then when he goes over and grabs Christopher's arm and sees in Christopher's face that Christopher is worried about him, he then touches Christopher's face with this fatherly intimacy watch Gandolfini play that scene and tell me this isn't a top 10 performance of all time yeah I agree it's a great showing for James Gandolfini one of his best in the whole show uh it moved me for that reason among many others it's it's a master class in every possible category of technical production and writing and storytelling this is um, a potential top five episode for me. I'm sure we'll do epi special episodes with lists and, and whatever, top fives, top threes. Isabella's a fucking contender, man. And I also am going to say that I think this is going to begin something of a tradition for The Sopranos where the penultimate episode can be just as intense, if not more intense, than the finale itself. May not be the case this season, but... Man, this episode is just tops. Guys, thank you so much. This is great. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will be back for the season one finale. What a season it's been. I dream of Jeannie Cusimano. We are at our climax. Fuck your slipper. If you like The Sopranos Podcast, please follow us on social media. At The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter, and The Sopranos Podcast on Instagram. To email us, hit us up at thesopranospodcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. If you don't want to leave a five-star review, 
Don't leave any review. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast.